Welcome to the First Contact Headache and Primary Care Podcast, where we break down topics in headache medicine for healthcare professionals seeing patients with headache disorders. This is a special episode from our Migraine and Women's Health mini-series. Thanks for tuning in. Hi, I'm Dr. Dina Kuruvila, a neurologist and a headache specialist. Welcome to a special women's health episode of the First Contact Headache in Primary Care series. Today, we will be discussing some of the most frequently asked questions when it comes to hormones and migraine, including information on treatments and how to have these conversations with your patients. Two of my good friends are joining me today to answer some of these questions. Dr. Susan Hutchinson, a family physician and headache specialist who is the director of the Orange County Migraine and Headache Center in Irvine, California, and Dr. Kate Sticka, an obstetrician and gynecologist from Northwestern University in Chicago and a reproductive pharmacologist. Thanks for coming back to the podcast. Absolutely. And hi to everybody out there. It's a pleasure to join both of you. I really love the conversations that we get to have on these podcasts, and I hope the listeners can benefit from frequently asked questions that we're answering today. So we got some key questions from some of our colleagues out in the community. So Dr. Hutchinson, just a quick question to start off here. How do you talk to your patients about hormonal changes in migraine? When will this first conversation happen? My conversation with talking about hormones and the relationship to migraine is going to start at the very first visit when that woman comes in to see me. Uh, What I want to know is, first of all, tell me about your menstrual cycle. Are you having regular menses? Are you using any form of contraception? And then I start probing and saying, have you noticed a connection between your menses and headache? I also might say, are there any other connections, for example, at ovulation? Because for some women, there's also a connection there. Because I want to establish very early on, does this woman have hormonal changes as a trigger or not? Because, you know, there are some women that their period and hormonal fluctuation has nothing to do with their migraine. That is not a trigger. So I'm going to approach that woman differently. And going back to your original question, I think it's important for women to understand that 60 to 70% of them probably do have a hormonal association. The majority will also have migraines at other times of their cycle, but I really want to look for that connection because she very often notice a migraine with Mm -hmm. menses either before, during, or after. So bringing, talking about hormones brings a very important question into my head, Dr. Hutchinson. Is, I mean, are hormones the reason that we think women have migraine more often than men? Are there other factors? How, why, why do women have migraine more often? Yeah, that's a great question. I think when you look at boys and girls, some studies show that boys may have a little higher prevalence. Other studies show it's about equal. But when you look at puberty, And when young women start having hormonal changes in their period, that's when the ratio, the prevalence of migraine jumps three to one, women to men. And that disproportionate ratio continues until the time of menopause. And fortunately, at menopause, women's prevalence of both tends to go down and you no longer have that three to one ratio. So do I think hormones play a factor? Yes. But I was giving a lecture one evening and I was asking in the audience, you know, 
what do you think about why women get more migraines than men? Right. And nobody was answering their, you know, raising their hand. And I said, well, uh, the answer starts with H. So one woman raised her hand and said, husbands, it's our husbands. Um, <laughs> but I do want to make a quick point because I also have a very strong interest in major depressive disorder. And we know that women suffer from MDD more than men. And so I think there might be also other factors, not just hormones, but if you have a woman who has, you know, also depression, we know that there's been studies uh, showing some bi-directionality mm -hmm. so that if a woman has migraine, more likely to get depression, vice versa. So I don't think it's quite as simple as just hormonal fluctuations to cause this three to one ratio. That is fascinating. So there's a component of stress that our husbands cause. I think so. That could be worsening, worsening migraine and, and maybe other conditions. I'm going to have to have a conversation with my husband about this after the podcast. <laughs> so kind of, well, I have another question about hormones uh, since, you know, we're, we continue to talk about some of these differences between uh, men and women. Dr. Sticka, what are some hormonal treatment approaches to help a person with menstrual migraine? So when I think about migraine, women with migraine and reproductive hormones, there's actually two questions. Does she need contraception? Does she want contraception? Um, and the second is, can we use reproductive hormones to actually improve her quality of life with, with, with uh, menstrual migraines? To answer the first question or to approach the first question um, in terms of co appropriate contraception, um, it's really important for, you know, women who are, if they're on certain preventative medications, such as the anti-epileptics, that she not become pregnant. So it's, it's very important to address the efficacy of the, the contraceptive method that she's using. Mm -hmm. um, and clearly foam and condoms uh, will do nothing or, or are not good enough for somebody who's on valproic acid. So we need to make right. sure that she does not become pregnant. But more importantly, we can actually use reproductive hormones to change her hormonal environment and actually reduce uh, the frequency and intensity of, of her perimenstrual migraines. And we can do that by preventing the fall in estradiol levels that occur when a woman does not get pregnant uh, at the end of the luteal phase, right about the time of her menstrual migraine. And in order to do that, we also have to prevent ovulation. So we can use either a combination of estrogen and progesterone or progesterone or systemic progesterone itself mm -hmm. to suppress ovulation, to suppress the changes in estradiol and to, to create a static, uh, non-fluctuating um, estrogen state within the brain. The best ways to do that if you're going to be using combination is not even the birth control pills. Although some women actually, I've had women say to me, you know, to me, contraception is a birth control pill and I don't mm -hmm. want to be on anything other than that. Right. Well, that's, and if we can't convince her otherwise, what you have to pick is one of the monophasic pills. In other words, a pill that has the exact same combination of estrogen and progesterone and, and progestin in each of the pills. Then I what I recommend is rather doing a 21, you know, seven, you know, 21 days of pills, seven days off, you can take them continuously. There's absolutely no reason to stop mm -hmm. a right. monophasic birth control pill. We use that all the time in lots of other conditions. I see. But that's so if so, that's for the combined birth control pills, but I actually prefer rather than an oral route, I actually prefer either a transvaginal, 
mm-hmm. or a transdermal approach of giving combination uh, um, contraceptive hormones, because both of those routes produce a, a non-fluctuating constant release of mm-hmm. estradiol in the system that prevents even the daily fluctuations you can get with birth control pills. You, you, what you want to do is to have the lowest estradiol uh, or estrogen, ethanol estradiol or estradiol possible. Mm-hmm, uh, right. and, and even in these methodologies, you don't want them to have a placebo time period. You take the, the vaginal ring out and you put a new one in. You take the patch right. off and you put a new one on. The problem with, with unopposed or uh, non-fluctuating contraceptive hormones is you can sometimes get uh, breakthrough bleeding. And if that occurs, mm-hmm. then you stop them for three, four, five days, a short period to let a woman bleed. You get right, right. back on them. And so you have the shortest amount of time possible in mm-hmm. which her estradiol levels fall. And then just to approach pro- uh, the, another way to go about it is with systemic progestins. You mm-hmm. can do a progestin implant. You can do injectable progestins such as um, hydroxyprogesterone acetate. Uh, and both of those methodologies um, approaches suppress ovulation very effectively, and they have long-acting reversible contraception, uh, which is considered probably the, the most effective in terms of preventing pregnancy and I suppressing see. ovulation and suppressing the fluctuations in estradiol that produce the migraines in the first place. Interesting. And do you find that the transdermal approach and the, and the vaginal approach, uh, patients are more adherent to these modalities as opposed to the oral formulations? Well, that's the beauty of long acting reversible contraception is you separate the, you know, the act of, of conception getting of intercourse from the decision to contracept. I mean, an implant, you, it, it is inserted and it's good for three years. The, um, the, um, the progestin, um, that you, the injectable is good for three months. Um, mm-hmm. the, the transvaginal ring, you put it in for three weeks and then you take it out. The, the transdermal estrogens are, are weekly, but mm-hmm. they, the compliance with anything where, you know, mm-hmm. you, you have to remember to take it less frequently, yes. um, always improves compliance than having to remember, did I take that stupid pill this morning? Um, yes. is, is always a potentially problematic. Yeah, absolutely. That is a, those are some, that's a really good tip about considering those transdermal options and transvaginal options for our patients. If we have patients who prefer a non-hormonal approach to treatment, Dr. Hutchinson, how would you approach those patients and what, what might you advise? Well, for menstrual migraine, and again, we know that 60 to 70% of women have that hormonal connection. I think there's a number of strategies that I think the key point is that you can do short-term targeted prevention because you may have a woman, and this happens every day in my practice, that she says, you know, Dr. Hutchinson, three weeks out of the month, I'm pretty good. I take my triptan or my G-pan as needed, but boy, it's just not as good around the time of my period. So why not do you know a preventive approach when some of these women don't want to take preventive every day? So The least expensive would be to do a non-steroidal and magnesium, and there is evidence for both. And I think the woman should start it several days before the anticipated menstrual migraine. 
you know, so you get ahead of it. And she can continue to take it until the end of menses. In addition to that, I often use a triptan for short-term prevention. There are seven different triptans, but I like the two that are longer acting, and that would be naratriptan uh, and also frovatriptan. And some women can do it once a day. Other women need to do BID dosing, but they can take mm -hmm. it every day for five to seven days in a row. And I have not seen any problem with medication overuse during that short time. But I might add that I'm sure all of you know this now, just recently, mm -hmm. Remigipan got FDA approved to be taken every other day as a preventive and it's a GPAN. So it's a newer medication, but this is somewhat interesting to me too, because perhaps Remigipan could be mm -hmm. taken as needed during her non-vulnerable time of the cycle. And then as you move closer to her menses and say, okay, great, this medication right. you've been taking for acute, now I want you to go into every other day until mm -hmm. you're done with your menses. So with some mm -hmm. of these newer agents, it's too soon to tell, but I think we have so many options now. Uh, mm -hmm. The hormonal ones that Dr. Sticka did such a good job presenting and a lot of non-hormonal as well. Yes, there's so many different options for patients now surrounding menstrual migraine. So uh, switching gears a little bit from menstrual migraine to fertility treatments, this is such um, a, a hot topic in many of our clinics with patients becoming pregnant later in life or, or um, and, and undergoing fertility treatments. Dr. Sticka, how should we approach counseling for patients with migraine who are considering fertility treatments? Well, one of the most important things is to let them know that their, their headache frequency and intensity may actually worsen while they're undergoing treatment. Um, part of it is related to the stress of infertility. Um, right. there, you know, the, the amount of personal stress, anxiety associated with it mm -hmm. um, is well known to be um, pretty intense, especially when people do not conceive uh, with each cycle or as, as the fertility treatment goes on. But the other thing that's important to understand is that the, by definition, the medications that are given to women are the ovulatory inducing medications. Um, the goal of them is to recruit as, you know, a number of, of follicles and to push them towards maturation. Mm -hmm. And as a result, estradiol produced by each of these follicles can really uh, become much higher than you typically see with natural um, hormonal changes. So instead of getting, you know, a single follicle that produces, you know, 20, 200 picograms of estradiol, um, you can have a follicle that's, you know, a, co a collection of follicles that are producing a thousand uh, picograms or 2000 picograms of estradiol. And when a woman does not become pregnant with that cycle, you then have those estradiol levels falling and that can be a significant trigger of, of, of migraine headache um, while those levels are returning to normal. And it can take a while during which time a woman is, is prone to developing um, migraine headaches. Um, so I think it's important that she understand that. I think it's mm -hmm. also important that you counsel women that because of the potential to conceive, um, during this process, that medications that would be contraindicated during pregnancy and during these early stages of pregnancy already get, um, uh, avoided that she stopped these medications. And so you have to do a very, um, 
you have to counsel a woman about the risks and benefits of the medications that she's on and mm-hmm. which ones can she stop or continue for prevention and which ones can she use um, for um, acute treatment. Yes. Um, many of these questions have been addressed in a, the podcast addressing planning for pregnancy. Yes, absolutely. It's, it's so important to consider each individual's patient's needs and really discuss all the risks and benefits um, with the patient before they move forward with fertility treatment. That's such an excellent point, Dr. Sticka. So then I have another question for you, Dr. Sticka. How, as a provider, are there any considerations that I should be making when I'm treating patients who are undergoing fertility treatments compared to those patients that are um, having unassisted attempts at conception? In terms of, I think the biggest issue is when she doesn't become pregnant on infertility treatments and that the return to normal uh, hormonal levels or they Mm -hmm. can start the next treatment can actually take a while. Um, It's not uncommon for women to develop ovarian cysts that continue to release estradiol Mm -hmm. um, and that, you know, rather than having, you know, the return to baseline estradiol levels take place over, you know, five to seven days, it can take weeks. And so so you may need to continue. I mean, the, the period at which she's vulnerable to developing these migraines can be much longer Mm And so I think you're going to have to counsel her that she either needs to take her preventative medicines, the safe preventative medicines, medications for a longer period of time, or not to Mm -hmm. be frustrated if she keeps getting migraine headaches that she has to acutely treat during this, this time period. Right. Oh, that's very helpful. Thank you so much. Doctors Stika and Hutchinson for sharing all your insights with our listeners today into these hot topics. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. And for me as well, I've, I've very much enjoyed um, speaking to both of you. Thank you so much for joining us for this special women's health episode of the First Contact Headache in Primary Care podcast. We'll see you next time. Thank you for tuning into this episode. Listeners can find additional information and doctor verified resources about migraine treatment and management on the First Contact Headache in Primary Care website visit the site at AmericanHeadacheSociety.org slash primary care. This podcast is brought to you by the American Headache Society and made possible by Eli Lilly.